Hello, and thank you for listening to Subject to Interpretation. Hosted by Augustine De La Mora. My name is Claudia. And my name is Kayla. And we are the producers of this program. Before we get into today's interview with special guest Oswaldo Aviles, who is the administrator of the interpreter program at the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts, we wanted to bring you the latest announcements from De La Mora Interpreter Training. If you found us on Facebook, we'd like to remind you that you may download us to your phone wherever podcasts are available. Now on to some more exciting news. Join us Friday, November 9th for our Finding the Parallels Welcome Reception. This is free to the public and open to anyone interested or curious about becoming an interpreter, as well as all certified and registered interpreters are welcome to come. Beginning at 6 p.m., the reception will feature a panel of federal and medical interpreters, followed by a networking event, drinks, and free giveaways. Don't miss on this rewarding opportunity. And do you want to keep up to date with your CEUs and Delamora's webinars and podcasts? Join our membership program for legal interpreters, where you will find a library of educational resources and courses required for CEUs, also where you can view all past and upcoming webinars, our next webinar takes place tomorrow, October 27th, pre- presented by our one and only Augustine De La Mora. With our student membership, you will have access to all of these for only $19 a month. And as always, all the links will be in the description bar below. Now stay tuned for next week's podcast featuring Patricia Mickelson-King, federally certified interpreter and Spanish professor who assisted in developing the state test as well as the federal oral and written exams. Should be interesting. And last week, we asked you once again to send in your questions for us to answer on air. And here are the top three questions. Number one being, how many CIEs will I earn by attending the Finding the Parallel Summit? You'll be able to earn 16 CIE credits for the state of Florida, as well as 10.5 IMIA credits for all of you medical interpreters. And do you offer FCIC exam prep? Yes, we do. In fact, we have the very last one this year, uh, starting on December 3rd. And then we will have a few additional offerings next year, both for the written and oral prep. And do you offer conference interpreting courses? Yes. uh, If we haven't yet, we're happy to announce that we will be offering conference interpreting classes in 2019. So stay tuned. We appreciate you all for listening in. We pride ourselves in being one of the very few podcasts for professional interpreters out there. So please share us with all of your colleagues. We would love to hear more of your feedback and questions. And we will continue to answer the frequently asked questions here on the podcast. So please feel free to contact our office. And you will most most likely likely hear from from one of us. (laughs) Until next week. Now enjoy the interview with Oswaldo Alviles. Goodbye. So hello and welcome to another edition of Subject to Interpretation. My name is Agustin de la Mora and I'm your host today. And I'm very happy today because a good friend of mine that has uh, been working in this field for many, many years, uh, Mr. Osvaldo Aviles is with us today. He has agreed to share with us his experience uh, both as the... um, director or of the access uh, language access program for Pennsylvania. He'll tell us uh, what the exact title is. And uh, the first person uh, that we are uh, doing in this uh, series that is actually involved with uh, the 
testing and hiring interpreters for the state. So we're very pleased to have him here. And without further ado, welcome Osvaldo, how are you doing? Good, how are you, Habenstein? Thank you for having me. Well, thank, thank you for agreeing. And, and as I was telling, why don't you tell us exactly what your title is and what is it that you do for the state of Pennsylvania? Well, my actual title is uh, Interpreter Program Administrator. Uh, so we do have a second person in, in, on staff that is the actual language access coordinator. So I don't want to rob any of her uh, uh, spot by, uh, by um, assuming her, her uh, title as well. So I'm, I'm just in charge of managing our um, interpreter certification process. Right, and you say just, but it's a pretty big endeavor, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's a pretty big task, especially here in Pennsylvania. You know, we're one of the largest states and uh, we have uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, number of courts to um, serve. We have 60 judicial districts. So 60, you say six zero? Six zero, yes. Wow, wow, yeah. that's plenty, yes. And all of them, uh, one way or another, are going to uh, have to deal with you or call you when they're needing the services of an interpreter. Is that correct? Correct. We publish a roster of uh, certified and otherwise qualified interpreters that's available on our website. Uh, and whenever uh, the uh, language that a particular uh, district needs is not listed on our roster, then they contact us and we uh, make resources available to them that we uh, gather and collect through uh, means like the National Center's uh, database and the uh, National Association of Judiciary Interpreters um, roster and ATA roster. Good. Now, let me back up a little bit because uh, you have been in this business for a while, ever since you were a teenager, I understand. and uh, <laughs> And... Before becoming the director of the program for core interpretation, you were an actual interpreter in Pennsylvania. Is that true? Yes. I, uh, before assuming my present position, I worked for 14 years uh, as a staff interpreter in the uh, Common Police Court in Philadelphia. Common Police Court is what we call our court of first instance. And even before that, before I took my job with the court, I was interpreting already for about five or six years. Um, I started uh, doing some uh, teaching with Berlitz uh, and eventually became engaged in interpreting for them. Uh, then after that, I went to work for uh, Community Legal Services, which is an agency that provides uh, services here in the Philadelphia area uh, to low-income people that cannot afford to pay their own attorneys. Uh, <clears throat> and there I also was working not only as an interpreter, but as a um, community uh, organizer, as well as the uh, representative or the paralegal, they called it, uh, for uh, workers' comp cases. So I was doing worker comp, uh, workers' comp cases and, and representing people in those as well. And that was all before coming to the court. Right. And what you became an interpreter, like probably many of us, you mentioned that you were a Berlitz teacher, you know, and maybe some people might know that I was a Berlitz teacher too. Uh -huh. And I'm starting to find out that 
Patricia Michelson King was a Berlitz teacher and maybe uh -huh. be writing letters to Berlitz saying, hey, guess what? Your alumni is now working <laughs> in the field of interpretation. So, but you, uh, when you were a kid, did you say, oh, I'm going to be an interpreter when I grow up? Was that your No, I, I did not. Uh, growing up, uh, my grandmother always had designs that I was going to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I actually went to college, I decided I didn't like uh, the law mm -hmm. as a profession. So I turned to the other major profession in the family, which was uh, teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother is a retired college professor, and I have several aunts and cousins who are also college professors. So I uh, went on and thinking that I was going to become a college professor professor in political science. That's what I liked. Mm -hmm. And then how did you kind of fall into interpreting? You say well, um, yeah, I went to college in Puerto Rico, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I finished my BA, I decided to come to the States for a master's degree. And uh, when I came to the States, uh, while I was working in my master's degree, I started looking for opportunities to, uh, you know, have some additional income uh, aside from the uh, scholarship that I received to attend. Uh, I, was, I, went, I was going to Princeton at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I started doing some uh, looking around and I found that Berlitz was looking for teachers. So since I presumed that I was bilingual enough, uh, I uh, went and applied for a job and they took me in as a teacher, you know, uh, or originally. Uh, <clears throat> and then later on, you know, an interpreting uh, opportunity came up and, and, and I said yes. And I launched into that without, like you said, without any training, you know, just walking up, showing up one day and saying, hey, I'm the interpreter assigned to, to work with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And surprise, surprise, it wasn't as easy as you thought it was going to be. Maybe. Surprise, surprise, it wasn't <laughs> as easy, yes. Now, since you went to Princeton, I have a very important question to ask you. <laughs> did you go to school with Brooke Shields and did you know her? Not at that time. Dang. I, so asked her, I asked her that. When I found out that she had, she's a Princeton alumni, yeah. uh, I, I asked her that. But unfortunately, I think that the age difference uh, has something <laughs> to do with that. I was there way before she did, I think. Uh -huh, got you, got you. Well, I was hoping that you could tell some stories about Brooke Shields. but <laughs> All right. So then, so you become an interpreter with Berlitz. And if I remember correctly, Berlitz didn't have that much training for the interpreters, right? They would just send you because you were their teacher. That's right. Because I was a teacher and because I was bilingual. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, determined that, you know, I, I was good enough to be a teacher. So I should probably know the language uh, well enough. So here you go. There you go. And so when you started as an interpreter, what, what did you think? Did you think that you were going to stay with it or was it just as you said, just kind of to gather some extra cash? Well, when I first started, I, my idea was, you know, this is extra cash, extra money. I, I wasn't taking it very seriously. Uh, but then uh, eventually I started liking it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I finished my, my, uh, my master's at Princeton, uh, I went back to Puerto Rico for a year, and then I came back to the States. I actually went and did some teaching at the university uh, in Puerto Rico. 
and uh, decided to come back to work on my PhD. And then when I came back, I rehooked up with uh, with uh, Berlitz, and uh, that's when they started sending me to some interpretation assignments. Uh, and I started liking it. And I, more, more importantly, I, I found that I had some facility for it. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so um, I had uh, most of the vocabulary uh, and I had, you know, the uh, facility to speak and listen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the retention um, uh, skills, the memory skills. So um, I said, hey, maybe this uh, can lead to something. And at the same time, when when I was here, I was studying in the States. I wasn't teaching, so I was still needed that extra income. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a few years, and you're still liking it. And now you, how did you get it? How did you make the leap to go to start going to the courts? Was it that Berlitz sent you to courts? No, I, at that time, I was already working for Community Legal Services, that other agency I mentioned to you earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, while at Community Legal Services, I was doing court stuff. Obviously, I was—I said I was working as a paralegal mm-hmm. and going to workers' workers' comp hearing and and unemployment compensation hearings. So I started to familiarize myself a little bit with the legal process. And then remember, my my grandmother always wanted to me me to be an attorney. Of course. So uh, <laughs> I started reconnecting with the legal aspect. And I was enjoying it, you know. I I was winning, you know, my fair number of uh, of cases at, at the workers' comp and 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 unemployment compensation hearings. Uh, but while working at community legal services with a bunch of other attorneys uh, or attorneys, I'm not an attorney, but a bunch of attorneys, they uh, one of them one day said, you know, um, the uh, court of common pleas is looking for a staff interpreter. Uh, they already had staff interpreters, but uh, they were looking for an additional uh, interpreter. They have a position open. So I went and applied and I got the job. <laughs> Again, with- So lo and behold, I left community legal services and I went to uh, work for the courts. All right. And Still without having had any kind of certification or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, after I had been working for the courts for a while, there was a change of leadership in the courts and someone from the National Center for State Court came in uh, to help re, uh, redesign the, uh, uh, the court uh, employment and, and, and uh, uh, system. Uh, and then he decided that because there were staff interpreters uh, that they needed to be tested because at that time, the, the National Center had started uh, the consortium mm-hmm. with uh, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Washington, and Oregon. And uh, they already had developed some testing, so they knew about testing, so they brought that idea, and then they told us that we had to test um, uh, for, you know, if, if we wanted to continue to be employed as staff interpreters. Mm-hmm. And do you remember who was that person from the National Center? Uh, the the national the person from National Center that came in as a consultant to to uh, was Bill Hewitt. Oh, I see. Yeah, and then uh, we all he remember in, him fondly. Yeah, and then he brought in Robert Jolie. Oh, wow! Who was uh, involved in the beginnings of the consortium and was nearby in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, 
So it was Robert Joe that organized the testing. That's cool. Uh, we actually had uh, Robert Joe as one of our guests for this podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, so he told us, because I knew that he kind of owned the history of, <laughs> of, of the consortium and the testing in the United States. You know, unfortunately, by, by then, Bill Hewitt had passed and we didn't have the opportunity to talk to him. So, but Robert Joe certainly gave us a very good history lesson on how this developed. Right. So you got, did you have to test with the New Jersey exam then? Was that your first? Yes, they used a New Jersey exam and the ra it was live. The Raiders were sitting there across from you on the table. I remember. They had three Raiders. Um, <clears throat> two of them were reading the script. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one was taking notes, uh, and the test was recorded. And it was the test was uh, given to us in, uh, in here in City Hall in Philadelphia. Mm. Nerve wracking. I remember those days when I took. And, and actually, the state exam was modeled so much after the federal exam that it had the same structure. Because when I took the federal exam, that was exactly the structure: three mm -hmm. very serious-looking people. Yeah. One of them, Holly Mickelson, who, that made me even more nervous. Yeah. And, then, and then they would read to you and they would take notes. And supposedly, every time they wrote down something, it was not bad. But I, I'm sure all of us thought that every time they put pen to paper, <laughs> we had made a mistake. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you got one of the scoring units wrong. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So, yeah. all right, so, so you got this test and then how... How has it changed from that time to now as far as uh, uh, Pennsylvania? How are things going over there? Uh, are you still testing now? What is, what is the story now? Well, yes. I mean, um, when, when we took that test, uh, there was no statewide program for certification of interpreters, the, uh, the uh, Philadelphia courts were at the vanguard, vanguard of the, uh, of the uh, testing process. It's, uh, but, so we became you know, certified, and my certification was officially like a certification from New Jersey. From New Jersey. Uh, yes. Pennsylvania. So I, the letter I got said, you know, you've been certified in the state of New Jersey. <laughs> but that was good enough for, yeah. for Philadelphia. So at that time, there was no formal testing. It wasn't until much later in uh, 2001 this we we took the test in uh, 1997 um and it wasn't until 2001 that uh because of a commission that was put together by the pennsylvania supreme court to look at uh, issues of racial and gender bias in the court system that the issue of qualification of interpreters came up the uh, issue of qualification of interpreters wasn't originally in the uh, mandate of that commission, but as they went around the state holding public hearings and interviewing people, uh, the issue of the quality and availability of interpreters came up. Mm -hmm. So um, it uh, took up uh, such a big uh, role in the uh, commission's work that it ended up being you know, the very first chapter in the uh, commission's report to the court, and there was a recommendation to create a program to uh, qualify interpreters for the court system statewide. Um, and uh, the commission made two recommendations. One, uh, that they looked towards the National Center, then already established 
consortium for language access in the courts, um, which had started like in 1995. Um, and then the second was to um, create uh, a program within the administrative office of the Pennsylvania courts to manage that process of certification and qualification. And uh, the court reacted very positive, in a very positive way to that uh, recommendation and immediately went to work. And in 2000 and, uh, 2003, um, started uh, a program, uh, putting together a program, and then I was hired in 2004 to be the, uh, the uh, administrator of the program. Mm -hmm. And that's when we really started. And um, the, you asked me, how has it changed? Well, um, the, uh, the way that uh, the uh, exams are administered has definitely changed. You know, we no longer have that model where, you know, you sit in front of a, of a panel. Scary people. <laughs> scary people, the three proctors. Uh, to uh, have uh, the test delivered to you uh, live. Um, you know, the, uh, the National Center uh, has gone through a process of uh, streamlining uh, the delivery of the, uh, of the testing instruments. And now, so the tests are recorded and you can deliver the test either via CD or via uh, audio recording directly from a laptop or any other... Um, uh, electronic device. Um, so, um, and the, uh, the National Center has also uh, continued to develop uh, tests in additional languages. When we first started, the tests were only for Spanish. Mm -hmm. And now we have, uh, thanks to um, the National Center's program, uh, 22 languages that we can test in. Uh, have you had people test on all 22 of those languages? No, we haven't. Uh, we have about 10, 12 languages that we test most of the time. Uh, we have had, uh, for example, we never ish, we've never had a, a Somali test. Mm -hmm. um, and we've never had uh, the other uh, language is Turkish. We've never had a, a test in Turkish. How about uh, Marshallese? Because I, I, I know that. No Marshallese. No, no Marshallese. Mm -hmm. Well, we do have plenty of candidates that take tests in Korean and Vietnamese and Arabic and Chinese and Portuguese, which are languages that you know are in high demand um, for for our court system. So now uh, those changes have been evolving while you have been the director of the program. As the director of the program, how do you see the candidates? First of all, if I want to be an interpreter, what would you tell me? What is it that I need to do? Because, hey, I'm bilingual. Mm -hmm. You started with no training. Can I do the same? Right. Um, well, whenever we have people that show interest in, in the program and becoming uh, certified with us, um, we start there. We tell them, you know, you have to be bilingual. And being bilingual means that not only can you speak the language, uh, but you also have to be able to read and write the language. Uh, at the level of a native speaker. Um, a lot of the uh, problems that we have with candidates these days um, result from the fact that many of the, uh, of the candidates that want to become certified are second and third generation speakers of their foreign language. 
so English is their first language, so they're not as fully bilingual. So I think you have to have a solid background uh, in, in both languages. That's number one. And um, number two, uh, we try to um, make clear to them that you need certain interpreting skills like being able to have a good memory, be able to um, take notes effectively, um, be able to um, follow uh, a conversation and speak simultaneously as the other person is speaking, um, and augment all of those skills with uh, some you know, basic cognitive skills and that uh, you can develop if you practice, you know, hard enough. Mm-hmm. So, um, and when, when candidates do not have, you know, the necessary um, language skills, we recommend that they take some courses uh, at the community college level or some uh, other college or university to um, augment those uh, language skills. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh when we 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 think that uh, most candidates, uh, as long as they have um, the cognitive ability, can learn the uh, interpreting skills. Um, you can improve your note taking. You can improve your memory retention. You know we can give them exercises to to learn to do that. Uh, but the language skills are something that if they don't come with, that's something that we're not prepared to to give to them. Uh, we cannot, you know, run, you know, uh, uh, a course in, in learning Farsi or learning uh, uh, Catalan or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and I understand since you brought up, and we've talked about this exam many times, we know it's uh, a lot of people talk about this in the in the field of interpretation. That is how difficult it is to pass this test, how, how tough it is, how low the percentage is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a couple of things from different points of view. So first of all, what is a, 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 the average uh, uh, of people that pass the oral examination nationwide? Do you happen to know or in your state? Nationwide is between 8 and 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we hear from the National Center and from my conversations with other program managers throughout uh, the country, that's the average. Mm-hmm. Our passing rate is slightly higher than the national average. We have a 12% passing rate. Okay. And why do you think that is? Um, People in Pennsylvania are smarter? <laughs> Actually, I think uh, it, it has to do with two things. Um, first of all, uh, we really emphasize the training uh, and the practice uh, before you step up to take the test for the first time. Mm-hmm. And also maybe because we bifurcate the test, mm-hmm. uh, we uh, administer the oral exam in two phases. We um, give the uh, simultaneous first in phase one. And we do that because um, 90% of the time interpreting in the simultaneous mode is what interpreters are going to do uh, in court and in court uh, proceedings and so, uh, and then as, as phase two, we administer the site and the consecutive test. Uh, so we allow the candidate to concentrate uh, on trying to pass a simultaneous test first mm-hmm. uh, and um, developing their skills on that and practicing for that. Uh, and then 
once they are over that hurdle, uh, they can come in and take the site and they're consecutive. Mm -hmm. um, in our experience, uh, candidates that uh, are able to do well in the simultaneous have, have a better chance of passing the site and the consecutive on their first try. It doesn't happen always like that, but, um, but that's, that's been our experience. So I think that's, you know, those are two things why I think our passing rate is slightly higher. Right. Uh, and, you know, it also helps that, you know, at some point you have to say, you know, your pool of candidates, um, you're selecting a, from a pool of candidates that, that has um, the, 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 the most important qualification, which is, you know, they have a solid background of languages. Languages. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that we, as I travel through the country teaching uh, interpreters, I have noticed that uh, some uh, people do not understand that that uh, important difference between being bilingual enough to go order a cup of coffee or travel and and right. communicate with somebody with a lot of grammatical mistakes that people will forgive in in normal conversation mm -hmm. and assume that that level of sophistication in their language is going to function or work the same in a court environment that obviously it doesn't. So I, I have seen that. So there's two, there's the end users from the point of view of uh, attorneys, judges, uh, et cetera, and then the interpreter. So from the point of view of the attorneys and the judges, what do you hear about this low passing rate? Well, uh, the probably most common uh, complaint that we have from the uh, legal field as well as from our judges and court administrators is, you know, why is it so hard to pass a test? Mm -hmm. uh, it must be something wrong with the test because, you know, uh, people refer uh, friends and, and acquaintances that they know that are bilingual to our program all the time. And uh, we've had people that are attorneys, you know, people that have, you know, advanced degrees in var various fields uh, come in and take the test as well as uh, people that just have a GED or did not finish high school at, at all. But uh, some of them, you know, are, have the necessary um, makeup and they pass the test even if they haven't gone through high school. And you, then you have uh, attorneys and, and, and other professionals that take the test and can't pass it. Mm -hmm. So the issue is, you know, why, you know, what's wrong with the test that all these, you know, intelligent, bright people that we're referring to the program can pass. There must be something wrong with the test. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly trying, you know, to explain to them that it's not the test. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there is something that the candidate is not bringing uh, to the testing process that's lacking. Um, and, you know, we emphasize the point that uh, these candidates, we don't, we don't ask them to get every single uh, scoring unit right. You know, they only have to get 70%. So we're letting them onto the roster as a certified interpreter we can, when they can still get 30% of their interpretation wrong mm -hmm. uh, and still be called a certified interpreter. Um, so the other thing is, you know, people uh, don't realize, they don't have an idea of what interpreting is all about. They don't understand the role of the interpreter. Uh, they, they say, well, you know, you're just repeating what the other person said. How hard can that be? Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of a lot of uh, our uh, work here uh, since the program began has gone into the area of education. Education not only of interpreters for you know training them to uh, to uh, try and pass the test, but also education of the legal community, mm -hmm. uh, judges, attorneys, uh, administrators within the court system. Uh, and others that, that use interpreters on a regular basis to ha help them understand what the role and, 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 and qualifications are uh, and why is it that people pass and don't pass the, the uh, test. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, when, I, when we do an orientation program and I have to describe the program, our program has three main goals. One, number one, is to create a roster of interpreters. So that means we're testing and, and, and qualifying interpreters. Number two is to assist the judicial districts in uh, obtaining interpreter services. And, you know, I'm constantly answering questions from judicial districts about how, how do I manage this and that? How do I pay the interpreter? Complaints about invoicing, stuff like that. And then um, number three, and probably I, I would say the second most important aspect of our program is the educational aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to say that when I started this program or when the court started this program um, in 2004, actually, when we started testing, there was actually no uh, services for training interpreters in the state of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Since our program started, we have been able to develop a number of relationships with community colleges and universities uh, and uh, professional organizations to start offering training opportunities uh, to the point where, you know, we now have on a regular basis different types of trainings going on throughout the state, not only put together, you know, uh, or presented by us as a program, but also by uh, professional organizations in the state and a couple of uh, colleges and universities that have developed uh, training programs for interpreters. And that probably also is contributing to the higher uh, passing uh, rate of the, your candidates possibly. And, uh, and I wanted to get to that point because I think obviously we have to all understand and the people who are listening to us that want to become interpreters is that definitely uh, being bilingual and having the correct level is important, but training, educating right. yourself, and knowing it's really the key to success. And that just jumping in with two feet and, and passing, even if you were able to do it, that's not something that happens uh, very often. But right. I think that uh, that's why most uh, interpreters are not successful when they take the test because they assume, hey, I'm bilingual. And right. I, I, as you know, I like to say, well, I have you know, a driver's license, but I, that doesn't make me hmm. Dale Earnhardt Jr. That, right. Uh, even though I know how to drive and I've been driving for 30 years, I yeah. certainly don't know how to drive a race car. Yeah. Um, so what what else? If So the uh, advice that you would give to anybody who started in this business is good business to be in, bad, bad business to be in. You like it. Why do you like it? Would you well, recommend it? I think it's an excellent field to be in. Uh, <clears throat> ever since uh, I started in this field myself, the uh, opportunities for uh, interpreting not only as a legal interpreter, 
but in many other fields of interpreting, like medical interpreting, community interpreting, even conference interpreting have uh, skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, I think you probably know that uh, the interpreting profession is among the top 10 professions uh, identified by the uh, Department of Labor uh, in the United States uh, with, you know, uh, as having one of the uh, best growing potentials. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a good field to be in. Um, it's growing because the diversity in the country continues to grow and gradually um, we're making inroads into uh, the uh, uh, different areas where interpreting is being used and, 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 and making people understand that you know people have to be prepared and this is like any other profession mm -hmm. um and um so that in that sense you know i think uh the uh, field is wide open uh for advancement and and anyone that has the necessary um qualifications and is willing to put the time to do the, tr the proper training uh and 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 be uh, qualified uh, in, in one of the areas uh, of interpreting uh, is going to have a, a good a career path ahead of them. Yeah, and look at you. You're now in your, what, 15th year as the director of the program? Well, actually, uh, 14th. 14th. Uh, I'm yeah. now at that uh, point where I'm, you know, I was an interpreter for 14 years, and now I've been in a court administrator for 14 years. So uh -huh. I'm at uh, exactly 50-50. So you're a teenager in the field, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, Osvaldo, it's been a little over half an hour, and I know we had committed half an hour, so I really wanted to thank you for your generosity with your time and and uh, you giving us a little bit of an insight uh, to Pennsylvania. I know that if people have more questions, they can go to your website. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, where do they go, Pennsylvania Courts? or They go to uh, pacourts.us. Uh -huh. And then look for interpreter certification in the uh, um, in the bar right under the uh, header. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much again for your time. Uh, we hope to see you uh, uh, soon in the future, and maybe we'll have another conversation with you, and and you will continue to share with us what's going on with Pennsylvania. So thanks again. Sure, no problem, Agustin. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.